It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, July 4th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Some members of Congress want us to rely more on nuclear power. Republicans and Democrats note it's carbon free. But what about the safety concerns? It is one of our best options. And I personally think that this is going to be one of the solutions that we're going to have to use in the future. We've got to have base load. And Lisa Brady. Americans are generous when it comes to helping veterans, but be careful where you send your money. And all we're saying is, before you write that check, just know what you're doing. It's really simple. And I'm Paul Batura. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. How would you feel about relying more on nuclear power? Those who are concerned with climate change say we need to rely on it more. After all, it emits no carbon, no greenhouse gases. And while wind and solar may sound more ideal on that front, it's not as reliable. Nuclear can be relied on as a baseload energy source, consistently supplying power at all times, and currently supplies us with about 20% of our power, though plants are being and have been decommissioned. But talking about nuclear energy may have you thinking about Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. It makes many of us scared. In 2017, Fox News special report anchor Brett Baer did a Whatever Happened To segment on the Fukushima plant, six years after the nuclear plant was damaged during the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. An advisor to the president of the Tokyo Electric Power Company, known as TEPCO, says it will take 30 to 40 years to complete. It's a Herculean job. Uh, It's going to take them decades to basically dig the fuel out. They have to develop advanced robots because the radiation inside the buildings is so high that humans can't go in there. So it's taking, it's going to take time. The San Onofre nuclear plant in Orange County, California, right on the beach, is in the process of being decommissioned after leaks and safety issues forced officials to shut it down. It stopped producing electricity a decade ago and still 3.6 million pounds of nuclear waste are on site with no clear answer as to what exactly will be done with it. Nearly three years ago, the California Coastal Commission gave SoCal Edison the permit it needed to begin dismantling the plant, but nearby residents were alarmed. If it's so risky that the commission had to indemnify itself of risk, then why would you not do the same to protect the public of the same risk? That Edison locally relocate the fuel to a sound location not subject to the same environmental hazards that endanger it today. The problem is and has been where to put nuclear waste. Yucca Mountain in Nevada was taken off the table over many of these very safety concerns. Proponents of nuclear, though, say it's safer now. Cooling technology and construction of such plants has advanced. There are new devices, small modular reactors, considered safer, that produce less waste. Some in Congress want the U.S. to rely on nuclear power more. A Republican and Democrat last month together introduced legislation they say is meant to bolster our use of nuclear energy. The name of the bill is the Global Nuclear Energy Assessment and Cooperation Act. Buddy Carter is a Georgia Republican congressman. And really the goal is not only to increase our usage here in the United States, but also 
and also to bolster, if you will, the, the role of the United States in nuclear energy production throughout the world. Um, we need to work with our allies to make sure that we are not getting behind and losing in this uh, competition, if you will, with, with nuclear energy, because Russia and China right now are both using nuclear energy, and, and both of them are using it somewhat as a tool in, in other countries and developing countries to, to gain favor there. And we need to work with our allies, and that's what this bill does. It really does a, a number of things. First of all, it gives us an assessment of what's going on out there in the world. And secondly, it um, it gives the Secretary of Energy the ability to, to develop a, a program that will help train some of these foreign countries um, in nuclear energy experts and, and kind of uh, create what we refer to as best practices in business. And, and that will be important as well. And it also, and this is extremely important, it denies the um, the importation of nuclear fuel from Russia and China and okay. our adversaries. And we need to make sure that we are, are, are doing just that. So talk to me about that, because it says that this bill would counter our adversaries' nuclear capabilities. You talked about Russia and China. How does this counter them? And is that what you're saying when you say that we would essentially be competing with them by by even creating it. We would be not only in the nuclear game in a bigger way, but we would be exporting that that energy that we produce to other countries, therefore making other countries more reliant on us. Is that what you mean? That's exactly right. And we know what what Russia is doing. Their their game plan is quite clear. They have weaponized um, their energy supply. Um, We know that. Um, And they're using it as as, as a tool of coercion, and and right now they are they are pretty much dominating the nuclear markets. As is China. You know, China is currently constructing um, and building four nuclear reactors um, outside of their country right now. That's in addition to the forty-five reactors that they've built over the last thirty-three years in China. So both China and Russia are using nuclear energy as a as a tool, if you will, to extend their influence in the world. We need to combat that in in the United States. We need to do it with our allies. Let me ask you, though, because energy prices are obviously soaring, as we know. Nuclear energy, I don't think, would offset, you know, use of oil in our cars, for example. Um, But what what is it an alternative to? Is it natural gas? Would it lower prices, energy prices in any way? Well, what nuclear energy offers us is is safe and reliable and clean baseload energy. Now, that's extremely important. I had the opportunity to travel to Europe earlier this year with the Conservative Climate Caucus, and we met with a number of European Union uh, representatives. And what we saw there is that their policies are getting ahead of their innovation. And they have already started closing down some of their nuclear plants. And now, all of a sudden, we were actually there during February when Russia invaded Ukraine, and we were in Brussels at the European Union. And as a result of what has happened with the invasion and the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia, now all of a sudden, Europe has in a situation where they've closed down their nuclear plants because they wanted to convert to natural gas and other clean and, and solar and wind and other cleaner forms of energy, but because Russia cut out and they stopped buying the energy from Russia, now they've had to revert back to that dirty energy because they closed down their reliable baseload um, nuclear plants. So they, 
they really let their policies get ahead of their innovation. We need to be very careful not to do that here in America as well. Talk to me, though, about Europe. France relies heavily on nuclear power, but they are sort of infamously right now running into a lot of problems. There's corrosion issues and problems with cooling the reactors. They need a ton of investment and cash to, to fix them. There's even talk of having the government take them, take them over. And there's talk of rolling blackouts this summer in France. How would you avoid many of these issues? Well, that's why when we're working together and we can learn from each other, that, that it's so much more advantageous. Um, you know, you always want to look at best practices to see how you can avoid just these kind of situations that have uh, evolved in France and in other countries that are using nuclear power. Also, it, I think it's important to mention the, the small modular reactors that are very in favor right now that are much cheaper and, and more flexible uh, and, and that can provide, um, can provide power and, and reliable power as well. So, you know, nuclear is not perfect. That's, that's for certain. And yes, it is expensive. And, and obviously, you're not going to be able to use it for automobiles. But at the same time, you can use it for power uh, generation. And as we move um, more and more to EVs and to, um, mm. to that type of thing, then we're going to need that power, that electricity in order to, to recharge those batteries. You're working with a Democratic colleague on this legislation. Um, how do you and your Democratic colleagues who are on board with this, how do you guys look at this and say, okay, great, it's carbon free, but then on the flip side, not necessarily worry as much about the, the nuclear waste. I mean, even even if there are, like you're talking about these newer modular reactors, um, mm-hmm. even if there's less waste with the newer technology that, that's out there, there is still going to be nuclear waste. How do you, I guess, lessen fears about nuclear waste? Because where are we going to put it all? Well, that's a good question. And, and first of all, thank you for mentioning that this is a bipartisan piece of legislation. I am working with Democratic colleagues because we are all interested in our environment um, and, and we want to do what's best for our environment. And, and this does give us the opportunity. Nuclear gives us opportunity to use clean, safe and reliable energy. But uh, yes, there is a problem with nuclear waste. And, and there are a number of companies that are looking at um, how they can uh, recycle this and how I can and how we can answer this question. That's where innovation comes in. And I've always said that, you know, in order to address our dilemma with climate change, we've got to use mitigation, adaptation and innovation. I'm already working with uh, a number of groups right now about the recycling nuclear waste and, and what we can do with that. OK, but I, I'm from Southern California. The San Onofre plant was shut down several years ago after waste was leaking. Um, they even tried to replace a part, and then there were additional problems and a new leak. They eventually shut it down, and this was right around the time of the earthquake and tsunami uh, in Japan and, and all the effects from Fukushima's nuclear plant. How do you, I guess, convince people who maybe have some experience with nuclear, and it's not good experience, that we still need to travel down this road? Well, you're absolutely right. You bring up a good point in the sense that, uh, you know, we've even talked about it in the Conservative Climate Caucus about we need to find another name for it because nuclear just has negative connotations. And people, <laughs> when they when they think about nuclear, they think about, uh, first of all, nuclear bombs. And then secondly, they think about um, Three Mile Island and, and Chernobyl and, and all the other disasters that have happened there. 
Um, but we, we cannot allow that to prohibit us from moving forward with this. Is Why? A, Why can't we allow that to prohibit us? If we're talking about, we, you know, the dangerousness of it, the what if what if one is attacked? What if there's a leak? What if the, what are we going to do with all this waste? Yucca Mountain. There's been a huge political fight over Yucca Mountain for years over where to put the nuclear waste that we do have. No one wants it. Why? 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 Why doesn't that all derail this discussion? Because it is one of our best options. And I personally think that this is going to be one of the solutions that we're going to have to use in the future. We've got to have base load. Look, um, solar and wind are great. And we ought to continue on that path. I'm all for that. But they don't allow us or they don't give us the, the base load power that we need. What happens if the sun doesn't shine? What happens if wind doesn't blow? Well, in nuclear, it's always there. Yes, there, there are some challenges. There's no question about that. There's challenges with everything. But I'm confident in the innovators, the scientists, that they can get this done, that they can do this safely, and that they can do it in a cleaner manner, and, and that we can figure out what to do with this nuclear waste. Can you give me, I guess briefly, give up, me and my, my listeners um, something briefly about why you're confident in science, why you're confident that there is some innovation that can tackle this? Is it in the works right now? Or are you talking prospectively that it, maybe there's nothing in the works right now necessarily on what to do with waste, but you're confident that it will come? There are things in the works, and we are working with companies now that, um, mm. that are are very close to figuring this out and coming up with uh, ways okay. in, in which to recycle this and make it much safer. Congressman Carter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. This is Paul Patura with your Fox News commentary coming up. President Biden calls it the nation's only sacred obligation to prepare those we send into harm's way and to care for them and their families when they return and when they don't. This is an obligation that unites Americans. It brings us together to make sure the women and men who are willing to lay down their lives for us get the very best from us in return. Millions of Americans answer the call to share in that obligation every year, donating a lot of money to charities aimed at helping veterans. But that's not how all of it gets used. And there's a new effort to make sure donors know that. Believe it or not, in the year 2021, nearly a billion dollars to be exact, $966 million were given to charities that we discovered we would not recommend. Retired Marine Colonel Pete Metzger is chairman of the advisory board for Charities for Vets. Whereas $330 million were given to charities we do recommend. By any measure, that's an imbalance. So we took a look at the various veterans charities, the, the 78 largest and graded 30 of them is recommended and 48 is not recommended. And what we're simply trying to do are two outcomes, Lisa. One is to better inform the generous donor public as to where their money should go, we think, and more importantly, to take care of our wonderful veterans who really need the help. What makes your information at Charities for Vets different when you're looking at these various groups? Like other charity rating services, we look at a charity's general financial integrity and strength, 
one major difference is that we do not grade on an academic system like A to F or zero to five stars. Our system employs simply a pass-fail grade for all relevant factors. Using the stricter pass-fail approach, we have listed 30 charities, as I said, worthy of support, some highly recommended, and the rest not recommended. So ours is simpler and all based on publicly available information on IRS 990s and various reports from attorneys general. So think of the other charity ratings as they have a sliding scale. Ours is really simple, pass or fail. Hmm. I know one of the key metrics is how much a group is spending on running the organization, like overhead. Um, Now, it's it's not sinister. You know, maybe it just is inefficient management, right, in some cases. I mean, you're not suggesting that all of the not recommended groups are trying to rip people off. You're exactly correct. And in fact, the metric we use is 25% or less on overhead, we think, is a positive thing. And we're not suggesting at all that the others are doing it criminally or fraud, waste and abuse. But we are suggesting that people take a look at how the money is spent and where it's going. And if the, if those we don't, do not recommend don't like the grade they've replied, received, they can write us back via email and show us where we're wrong by showing us some new financial information. What do you look at besides overhead costs? We look at the amount of money that's being spent on the veterans programs they purport to do. You pick any cause you want. But we think that 75% of the money donated should go to directly to the causes they say they're going to give it to. I find it really discouraging when a charity sends gifts in the mail, like yep. notebooks or address labels, um, because then I'm left with the impression that they're spending money on that instead of the cause. Is that a legitimate concern or do, or do they you know, make arrangements and have great deals on their end to be able to send those things out? <laughs> I think your first statement is probably more correct in that a lot of these organizations hire direct mailing and and advertising people to represent them, which is a big cost. And so anything you see, I mean, it's a very evocative thing. You see a poor uh, wounded veteran or sick veteran or someone who needs a home or needs some money. And the first reaction of any good person say, gosh, what can I do to fix this? And so without understanding where you're going and mostly working on emotion, one writes a check for a thing and doesn't go where it's supposed to do. So again, by going to our website at Charities for Vets, people can see simply, we tell a little paragraph about each one, where it's going, what the direct mail costs are. And really, it's also an education in financial management. We believe that we uh, are encouraging those uh, charities focused on vets that perhaps have a little better financial management. Is there a type of charity or service that turns out to be most helpful to veterans based on need? For instance, are housing charities a better way to go in general or groups that help support veterans with injuries? Where is the need the greatest? Well, I think this might shock you. There are just under 20 million American veterans in this country, many of whom have been have had better luck than others and don't need that kind of support. But if, if you look at the website, I hate to keep referring to it, but it refers to the charity's name and what they do with it. Some of it's housing, some of it's financial assistance, some of the basic needs, food and clothing, some for prosthetic devices. They're, they're different uh, service dogs, all kinds of things. And all we're saying is before you write that check, just know what you're doing. It's really simple. What are red flags for people who really want to help veterans and don't know the best way to do it? 
Well, I think by looking at the the information we provide, the red flags are very clear. Again, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, wounded Warriors Family Support and the Wounded Warrior Project are two very common names. According to the latest financial data, Wounded Warriors Family Support has a $39 million budget and spends only 12% on overhead. We think that's great. The Wounded Warrior Project has a 276 million dollar annual budget and spill spends nearly a hundred million on overhead it's pretty clear what the difference is there the other indicator of a red flag is if we see a charity for veterans that has more than three years annual budget in reserve in the bank or in a hedge fund we don't think that's a good idea these aren't investment opportunities these are support opportunities Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you for an example of kind of best and worst, and you kind of beat me to it. But I think I remember reading, yeah. I think I remember reading that there was one base in Miami that out of um, millions of dollars collected was only spending 13000 Yes, there is. There is one in Florida, on the west coast of Florida, that was started by a licensed physician to practice medicine in Florida. He employed his wife as the CFO and his son in some capacity. Uh, they collected $2.7 million in donations and distributed 13000 in some spare change to veterans. We think that's egregious, and it makes us angry. I know you've said really the main goal here is to, you know, hopefully get more money to places where it can do more good. Um, yeah. You know, is do you feel the need to kind of reassure people about that? Like you're not out to get anybody. <laughs> no, that's the whole thing. This is not a vendetta. This is simply an education campaign, a public information campaign to help people who really want to do the right thing by veterans have a little more information. And on the other side, to perhaps put a little squeeze on some of the organizations who aren't doing a good job of financial management to ensure the men and women who really need the help are getting it. So it's not a, we're not making you know, value judgments on these things, on people. We're simply saying, here's information. And the way people can help is by donating tax-deductible donations to the through the website because the money spent on, on the website is many times, for example, $100,000 collected by us will yield 3 million media exchanges with the American public. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get the information out there. Yeah, I mean, more broadly, I guess it's a positive thing that it's, you know, there are many more ways now to raise money than there used to be. Or does that also just yeah. open the door, you know, to possible fraud and other problems? Well, you know, there's a lot of money given in charities by this country, by individuals, by bequests, by all kinds of things. And again, what we're trying to do is direct the money that people give to the cause they say they think they're giving it to. And another way they can help is they can go to our website and sign up to be something pretty cool called a Ram Warrior for as little as $10. And that will buy a whole bunch of media for us. They can become a Ram Ambassador for zero money, which means they can give us their email address and we'll keep them informed as to what we're doing. This rolled out only in consonance with Memorial Day. We're in the very early stages of it. So a lot of people say you haven't rated all the charities. That's absolutely correct. We're just starting it, but the response has been incredible so far. 
I know Charities for Vets is under the umbrella of the Robert Alexander Mercer Veterans Foundation. Um, For people who may not know, I mean, the Mercer family has been a force behind the scenes in in politics, to say the least. Yes. Is there there ever concern that the connection to politics will affect how something like this initiative might be received by the public? That's really a good question. You should be a journalist. Um, The the fact is that this is an apolitical, nonpartisan event. You know, Rebecca Mercer is the initial uh, founder of this idea, and it's her uncle. As you may know, Robert Alexander Mercer, who was killed in action in November of 1944. And in his memory, she donated the money to stand this thing out around Memorial Day to try and, like we've talked about repeatedly on your program, is to try and get money to the right places. We don't think, we hope people don't see this as a, as a, a partisan issue. Uh, you know, her name's quite famous for, for some causes, but this is a, a, a apolitical, bipartisan effort simply to help veterans. And she's been very generous with her time and money. Give us the website one more time in case people want to find out more for themselves. I would love to. Please go to charitiesforvets.org. I think you'll find it pretty interesting. Retired Marine Colonel Pete Metzger, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday. Many Americans will be away from home to finish out the 4th of July holiday. AAA predicts 47.9 million Americans are traveling more than 50 miles from their homes, up nearly 4% from last year. Despite high gas prices, about 42 million are expected to be driving. Tuesday. President Biden will award the Medal of Honor to four Army soldiers who fought in the Vietnam War. Wednesday. The U.S. Postal Service will issue a forever stamp honoring former First Lady Nancy Reagan on the 101st anniversary of her birth. Thursday. A near total ban on abortion will become law in Mississippi pending any court challenges. It will ban all abortions unless the procedure is necessary to save the life of the mother or if it is the result of rape and the crime was reported to police. Friday, Major League Baseball will announce the starters for this year's All-Star Game set for the 14th of this month. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Patera. What's on your mind? There are certain dates on the calendar that look different than all the others. You see them in print and they kind of pop out at you. Days like Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day. And your birthday. But July 4th is one of those other special days for me. In fact, it's a holiday so grand that it goes by three different names. July 4th, the 4th of July, and of course, Independence Day. Back in 1776, John Adams called the occasion, quote, a great anniversary festival and said it should be celebrated with pomp and parade, shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. 
I remember reading Adam's prediction in college. It inspired me to plan a celebration for my own hometown, which was Baldwin, a little village on the south shore of Long Island. This was back in the mid-1990s. At the time, it struck me that everybody knew about the Declaration of Independence, the document around which the whole holiday was formed, but very few had read it. I thought it would make sense to form an event around a public reading of the famed parchment. One of my neighbors and friends back in Baldwin was Bob Shepard. Bob was the longtime public address announcer for the New York Yankees. He was there for 57 years, so long that he announced players spanning the eras of Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle to Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson, and the entire 20-year career of Derek Jeter. I thought he'd be the perfect guy to read the declaration. Bob agreed, and there on a suburban tree-lined street with American flags fluttering on both sides and standing on a riser I borrowed from my church, Bob read excerpts from the famous document. Some people actually cried. The Yankees were playing home the next year, so Bob couldn't make our celebration. But the year after that, Bob was back, and I asked him to read another but much less famous document. It was Lou Gehrig's Farewell Address, a speech the Hall of Fame Yankee first baseman gave on July 4, 1939. You probably know portions of it, and maybe even the premise behind it. Lou was dying, cut down in the prime of his career, but there he stood in the sun behind home plate, wiping tears from his eyes. This is how he began. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. In the midst of his trials and troubles, Lou considered himself the luckiest man. What an attitude of gratitude. I'm thinking of our country this July 4th. We're a deeply divided nation. There's soaring inflation, social unrest, and growing concerns and questions about our leaders and their lack of leadership. Yet there's no place I'd rather be than right here in the United States of America this July 4th. If you're an American, you're not just lucky, you're blessed. Despite all our challenges and conflicts, our country, on this its 246th birthday, remains the last and best hope of the world. It was Catherine Lee Bates, who right here in my new hometown of Colorado Springs, wrote the lyrics to this famous patriotic hymn, America the Beautiful. I now read her poem as something of a prayer. America, America, she wrote, God mend thine every flaw, confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. With Focus on the Family, I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.